Welcome to another edition of Just Go Grind Premium, where I read my newsletter from JustGoGrind.com for you to have an audio version. Now, normally this is only available for premium subscribers. I'm sharing the first few of these for free here. You can become a premium subscriber by clicking below or going to JustGoGrind.com and signing up for a premium subscription. Darmesh Shaw's ambitious climb, building HubSpot into a 20 plus billion dollar CRM platform. Originally published April 16th, 2023, Darmesh Shah, co-founder and CTO of HubSpot, is easily one of the most unique and impressive founders you'll hear about. Not only did Darmesh build HubSpot into a public company valued at more than $20 billion, but he also managed to create an award-winning culture along the way. He's founded multiple companies in his career, made 80-plus angel investments, and, as crazy as it sounds, he's a leader at a company with thousands of employees, yet he has no direct reports. Let's get to it. Early Days Darmesh came from humble beginnings. In his deeply personal LinkedIn article, which is linked at justgogrind.com, he shares a bit more about his early life. I was born in Ankleshwar, Gujarat, a tiny town in India. I don't know what the population was back then, but it was probably fewer than 10,000 people. We had one somewhat paved road. There were no traffic lights or stop signs. My mom's family lived at the end of a dusty lane. There was no hospital nearby, and even if there had been, I don't know that my mom would have gone to it. So... I was delivered at home. She had a midwife to help, who was a family friend. There was no doctor. I was the first child. My mom was 18 at the time. Darmesh would describe himself as an odd child and would view his being different as a problem for more than 25 years of his life. While Darmesh was attending college in India, studying mechanical engineering, his parents moved to the United States and, while visiting them the summer of his second year in college, he fell in love. While I was an undergraduate, my parents moved back to the USA. I came to visit them during the summer of my second year in college. People had always told me, you really like math. You should check out this computer stuff. Running a computer in India is expensive because you have to have an air-conditioned room. It has to be relatively clean. I never got a chance to touch a computer while I was in high school or undergrad. I came here and my family was living in Indiana. Nearby, there was Purdue University. They had summer classes on introduction to computers. This was the proverbial love at first sight moment. Even though I had not packed any of my things, I didn't go back. I enrolled myself that fall into undergrad computer science. I was fortunate to find that love early on. I've been in computer software for most of my professional life. Darmesh's story reminds me of when Patrick Collison got access to the internet for the first time and completely immersed himself in it. Amazing just how impactful technology can be on us. It would take Darmesh seven years to get his four-year degree because he was working full-time as well, initially making $3.65 an hour in his first job after coming to the U.S. After transferring from Purdue to the University of Alabama at Birmingham, he'd graduate with a computer science degree and start his career as a software developer at SunGuard Employee Benefit Systems, a company later acquired by FIS. This would be the launch point for his first major career win. Pyramid Digital Solutions at 24 years old, two years after starting as a software developer at SunGuard, Darmesh launched his own company, Pyramid Digital Solutions. This company was an enterprise software startup in the financial services sector, and one he'd end up running for more than 11 years. While Darmesh would later raise venture capital for HubSpot, this was a company he decided to bootstrap, building it with his brother. One of the most interesting things about the company was how it got off the ground. As a self-proclaimed introvert, Darmesh didn't like selling. 
As a result, he showcased his resourcefulness, striking a distribution deal with SunGuard, the company he left to build his startup. They would get 50% of the revenue they brought in for him, a deal they likely never would have done had they not had a prior relationship with him. And they'd be the main distributor for those first few years, with Darmesh eventually expanding with more partnerships. In August 2005, Pyramid Digital Solutions was acquired for about $15 million by the same company Darmesh left to start it in the first place. When asked later in an interview on My First Million about the impact that had on him, Darmesh offered up this. At the time when I was younger, I was very, very focused on money. I had a very kind of modest upbringing, and I was like, okay, well, it wasn't about the money and the accumulation of it. It was freedom. For Darmesh, the sale of Pyramid had a dramatic impact on his life. The crazy part looking back now is that Pyramid is very much a footnote in Darmesh's career, much like what Sam Altman wrote about. And here's Sam. It's useful to focus on adding another zero to whatever you define as your success metric, money, status, impact on the world, or whatever. I'm willing to take as much time as needed between projects to find my next thing, but I always wanted to be a project that, if successful, will make the rest of my career look like a footnote. But we're not there yet. Here's how Darmesh started the company that would make him most of his wealth. Starting HubSpot. After selling Pyramid, Darmesh decided to go back to school, pursuing a graduate business degree at MIT. He's 35 or 36 at this time, and his plan is to get his graduate degree, then a PhD, then become a professor. He even promises his wife he's not going to start another company. But then he meets Brian Halligan. It all happened at a cocktail party at MIT. Darmesh, who as you might recall is very introverted at this time, has his wife scout the room, talk to people, and recommend who Darmesh should meet. She talks to Brian, but doesn't think he'd get along well with Darmesh. They seem too different, with Brian being a sales guy interested in sports, and Darmesh being this introverted programmer. Darmesh does end up saying hi to Brian at this party, but they don't talk much. However, after a few classes together at MIT, they eventually hit it off, bonding over their shared passion for SMBs. Brian describes the first project they worked on together. We started talking about HubSpot at lunch that day. It was something called LegalSpot, not HubSpot, which is going to be a suite of applications to help manage your law firm. We tinkered with it through business school. We put it in the business plan competition, the $50,000, now it's $100,000, business plan competition. We worked on it in a class called New Enterprises. We tinkered with the project for a while. Then when I graduated, a year before he did actually, he was on a different track than I was. And I spent about nine months in a little venture firm as an EIR, and we tinkered with it. We'd meet once or twice a week and work on the idea and pitch it to law firms. We kind of zigged and zagged a couple of times. Then during that time, we decided, well, it's not about building a suite of applications for a law firm. One of the applications we were talking about was a marketing application, was how do you get found on the internet? How do you get found in Google and social? How do you get found in the blogosphere? How do you grow a business? And all the law firms are interested in that. And so we pivoted. Instead of being a vertically specific application for law firms, we were going to build a marketing application for everyone. During that time, Darmesh also started his blog on startups, a site that would grow to hundreds of thousands of subscribers and that they'd actually use to launch HubSpot. The site also influenced the problem they'd pursue at HubSpot, taking a page out of Apple's playbook. Here is a quote from Darmesh. There's an interesting story in between. Brian and I had this idea that marketing was broken and needed to shift from outbound to inbound marketing. 
Brian graduated a year ahead of me. He graduated in 2005. His first job after graduation was an entrepreneur in residence at a venture capital firm. His job was to help these portfolio companies grow. He and I would meet weekly and just talk about general ideas. Here's the thing that struck us both. He would look at the traffic that I'm getting on my blog. He said, what are you doing on your blog that's getting all this traffic? I have these venture-backed rich people that have VPs of marketing, and yet you are getting 10 times the traffic on your blog. My response was, there's this discipline called SEO. There are these new social media sites. He wanted to do it in his portfolio companies. I'm like, put up a WordPress, put up Google Analytics, and he's like, that's a science project. They don't have time for that. That was the proverbial spark. We identified that this was a business issue. Some of the best entrepreneurial advice I've given and heard is to do one thing really well. HubSpot, at its genesis, did the exact opposite. We built a lot of tools. The whole reason for HubSpot to exist is that there weren't these tools out there. The problem is the tools are just too hard. In order for us to make it easy, we're going to have to build all of it in an integrated way the same way Apple did. In order to have consumers consuming, the iPod didn't hold more gigabytes or any of that. In order to enjoy digital technology at the time, you had to know about technology to get the music on your device. Apple said, we're going to give you a device. We also have iTunes. We're also going to have content partnerships with all the music studios. It's not like they invented the MP3 player. They just made it accessible. They would build a lead generation software business. In a later interview, Darmesh would describe their ambitions at the time. We didn't want a single or a double hit. We wanted to swing for the fences, and we do this in every point we have a decision to make, a fork in the road. We are going to take this one that gives us a higher chance at being a spectacular outcome, even if that means we're possibly going to go down and crash and burn in flames. So important to know what you actually want from your company. After an initial $500,000 investment from Darmesh himself, they end up raising a million dollars of angel capital in a family and friends round, and they're ready to launch. Launch. In June 2006, Darmesh and Brian officially launch HubSpot. Forbes describes the scene. The pair launched HubSpot in 2006 in a bright orange workspace in Cambridge, a mile away from MIT. A software startup focused on inbound marketing, which uses tools like blogging, marketing events, and paid ads to help companies attract, retain, and expand their customer base. A funny aspect of HubSpot in the early days was their pricing. It took all of about three minutes for Brian and Darmesh to decide on their price for their software subscription. They tossed out a number, $250 a month, and stuck with it. Mind you, the price was only $250 per month. No, no tiered pricing, no premium pricing, just $250 for everyone. The software would stay at that price for years, but it was actually something that was very important in the early days. Years later, in an interview with Harry Stebbings, Dimesh would explain how that month-to-month -month pricing allowed them to get more data points since customers always had the option to leave every month as opposed to annual pricing. They figured out more about what was making them stay and how HubSpot could offer more value. Since they were targeting SMBs with shorter sales cycles than enterprise customers, this learning was compounded. But early on, investors and other people Darmesh and Brian talked to didn't think SMBs were even the right market to go after, something Darmesh described years later. You're trying to acquire customers, and it's expensive to reach SMBs because, I don't know why, it just is. And then when you get them, they churn at a higher rate. And so it's like the math just doesn't work. You can't make the economics work. But that's exactly what we did. 
We did raise capital along the way. My guess is that our early investors humored us and said, yeah, they say SMB now, but they're not stupid. They're going to go figure out the enterprise is actually the way to go, and it'll be okay. That was, I think, the thought in their head. They underestimated our stupidity, as it turns out. We're now nine and a half years in, and we are still unequivocally SMB, working out okay so far, by the way. It's been fine. So they know who their customer is, they have a product, and they have a price. How do they actually get their early customers? Blogging was a part of it. Brian expanded on this strategy in the early days in an interview with Y Combinator. I remember the early days of HubSpot. Darmesh and I would write two blog articles a week, and we'd compete to see who could get more leads from the article. It was a very friendly competition, but we used to do that. We figured out, you have to write really good content, of course. That's table stakes. You have to have a great title, and we'd A-B test the titles a lot. And you had to have a large presence in the social media sphere so you yourself could market it. Maybe you could do that through some of your friends as well. You could get it to go, and once a week or so, we would have a home-run blog article, and that's how we really started the company. Darmesh launched a blog they wrote on through a post on his blog on startups. Soon after launch, they'd also implement what Darmesh would describe as one of the most brilliant things we did. Customer Happiness Index. About three months into the company, they launched the Customer Happiness Index, or CHI. People would assume that with a SaaS company, if customers aren't canceling, they must be happy with the product. Not necessarily the case. In a SaaS presentation, Darmesh explained the brilliant solution they came up with to solve this. What you have to do, what we did at HubSpot, I'll give you the very short version of it. In the first three odd years, we built in the first year this thing called the Customer Happiness Index. It was a model that we developed internally that looked at all the data available to us, product usage, which sales reps sold it, what day of the week they brought, they bought on, which customer service, etc. Everything we could possibly have about the customer all in one database, and we did regression analysis. The idea behind the Customer Happiness Index was for it to be a predictive model that says, knowing everything we know, how likely is this customer to still be a customer next month? We tweaked the model, as you would expect, being a bunch of MIT folks. We made the model relatively accurate so we could know. It's like, okay, Mr. Smith, we had a team that does this now. Mr. Smith, I know you don't know this, but you're going to cancel in 4.2 months. Is there anything we can do to help you? By the way, it's all included in the product price anyway. Why don't you use this and this? Can I help you with that? One of the most brilliant things that we did. The idea here is you don't wait until after they cancel to analyze the data. A lot of the data you need, you already have. Cancellation is a post facto indicator of unhappiness. Try to catch it earlier so you can do something about it. And the biggest value of the customer happiness index? Simplicity. A single number they can look to for how things impact it. And how do they use it at HubSpot? They'd have a customer success manager look at the lowest CHI customers, and they would call them, asking what they could do to make them happy. Sure, some customers end up canceling anyways, but that strategy ended up influencing many of them to stay. This also helped pave the way for continued growth. Series A, B, and C. In September 2007, HubSpot raised a $5 million Series A led by General Catalyst, but it wasn't easy. Here's a quote from Darmesh. Despite the fact that we had a bunch of chips in our favor, it was a hard raising our Series A. It was not easy that we were all in this small business space. There was only one other company that was successful in focusing on small businesses. That's Intuit. 
Intersect that with the fact that we're in the marketing space. Nobody had created anything of magnitude. The biggest exit that the industry had seen was Omniture. It's not something that software was used for a lot. They do $255,000 in revenue in 2007. In May 2008, they raised a $12 million Series B, and that same year launched Website Grader, a very important tool for them and one that's still popular to this day. The goal of this tool was simple. Help anyone with a website evaluate its effectiveness at attracting an audience of interested and relevant buyers. Brian described its value. It gave us a lot of credibility. I think about selling and modern selling. It's about helping people understand that they have a problem and really making that problem real to them. In the early days of HubSpot, that was a tool to really point out, boy, you're falling behind the competition. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit here. You're falling behind all these other folks. What are you going to do about it? Oh, you need some help with that? Well, let me show you a demo of our software. HubSpot would do $2.2 million in revenue in 2008, grow that to $6.6 million in 2009, and in October 2009, raise a $16 million Series C. In the next year, however, they make a big shift in the company. No new sales reps. In 2010, HubSpot would do more than $15 million in revenue. By August of that year, they had 3,255 total customers and 180 employees, 60 of which were salespeople. That year, they decided to make a change, putting their budget for marketing and hiring new salespeople to $0. Instead, they poured all their cash into product and experience. Why? Because they didn't think they were on a path that would lead to them creating the multi-billion dollar company they wanted. It wasn't a decision that would last forever, but it was part of their constant iteration every few months of the business. Another part of iteration? How they approached the services side of the business, which represented a small percentage of the revenue and which they thought was break even. Darmesh described how they found out the true value of these services through testing. Typically, new customers would pay $125 an hour for four to eight hours with a very experienced service person, essentially paid support at HubSpot. Wait, services? Wasn't this just a software company? Yes, services for onboarding and utilizing the platform to the max. For a month, Darmesh and his team tested what would happen if they didn't onboard new customers. The result? It led to much unhappier customers. And when they tested spending more time with customers, the customers got even happier, as measured by their happiness index lift. The takeaway message? Question assumptions. Since happiness correlated very well with lifetime value, it was clear these services were needed. This level of iteration and execution again and again fueled their growth. In 2011, they do $28.6 million in revenue and raise a $32 million Series D earlier in the year. By 2012, they were doing more than $50 million in revenue and raised a $35 million Series E. The next year, Darmesh would undertake one of the most important tasks in the company, creating their now-famous culture code. HubSpot Culture Code In 2013, HubSpot does more than $77 million in revenue and opens their first international office in Dublin, Ireland. They also launched the HubSpot Culture Code, which you can actually find online and it's also linked at justgrind.com, which is periodically updated over time and is now a 128-page deck available for free. It started after Darmesh's co-founder, Brian, met with a bunch of other CEOs. They stressed the importance of culture to Brian and how if you mess that up, 
Nothing else will matter. Brian, of course, relayed that to Darmesh, asking him to take on the challenge. And here's a quote from Darmesh. Then we had a founder's dinner shortly thereafter. He told me about this meeting. He's like, oh yeah, have my group meeting with the CEOs. And evidently culture is like super important. It's going to determine our destiny. This is the sentence I won't forget. It's like, Darmesh, why don't you go do that? <laughs> so I look at him funny. It's like, okay, I don't know what that means. Of all the people in the company, I'm the one that likes people the least. <laughs> why would I be the one to dig into culture? But he was a much busier person than I was. I'm like, okay, well, how hard could this be? There were fewer than 100 people at the time. I looked at it like an engineer would look at it, which is, okay, if I had to write a predictive function to calculate the probability that any given HubSpot person was going to succeed and be one of our stars, I don't know exactly what the weights are, but what would the coefficients be? What are the kinds of things that would likely play into it? Can I figure that out, at least kind of the first order? So I kind of dug in. I got the data from the team. It's like, okay, are you happy? Why are you happy at HubSpot if you are? And why you're not if you're not? That was Genesis. So it kind of started really small as a kind of this internal thing. I wrote this slide deck, which was 16 slides at the time, called the culture code. In a LinkedIn article from Darmesh in 2018, he'd expand on that culture. I've read a lot of the literature on diversity and inclusion. I've watched YouTube videos. I've engaged in some friendly debate. The evidence is strong and growing. Diverse teams do better, especially at scale. So it should be no surprise that I'm in support of diversity at HubSpot. Most of my time and almost all of my ego and identity is tied to the success of HubSpot, and I do whatever I can to help HubSpot. And it's clear to me that our success is highly correlated to our ability to attract and retain a diverse pool of smart, passionate, caring people. Darmesh would spend 300 hours coming up with the culture code deck, getting into the details of it, something he very much enjoys. Reflecting later on HubSpot's culture, it's actually what he would describe as one of the biggest mistakes he made. The first six hires were all men from MIT. They hadn't deliberately thought about culture and the values of having a diverse team back then. Darmesh mentioned how if he could do it all over again, he'd change that. This is also the year they start to think about the next phase of the company, preparing for one of the most important years of a company's existence. IPO. On October 10th, 2014, HubSpot went live on the New York Stock Exchange. They did $115.9 million in revenue that year. Prior to the IPO, in September, they make a big announcement at their Inbound 14 conference, launching their sales platform, which includes a free CRM. This was something that was decided a year before the IPO and was their second major product after starting as a marketing platform. Darmesh was asked in an interview when the right time is to launch a second product and gave these three scenarios. One, you're growing nicely, but there aren't many customers to sell to who you'd be an ideal fit for. Two, the category you're in is declining. Essentially, the ceiling is dropping. And three, there's an adjacent market that is a natural fit for the market you're in. And for growth and defense reasons, you need to be in it. The last scenario was the case with HubSpot. They started as a marketing software, a product that now does a billion plus dollars in ARR, but seven years in, they saw the writing on the wall. Leads generated through HubSpot were going to a CRM, and it was clear that marketing and sales go together. If they didn't go into a second category, launching their own CRM, the CRM companies would certainly go into marketing. 
And that would be a problem for HubSpot. It paid off big time. Growth. Here's HubSpot's revenue for the next three years. 2015, they do $181 million. 2016, they do $271 million. And in 2017, they do $375 million in revenue. They launched HubSpot Academy to help train professionals on digital marketing and HubSpot Ventures to invest in early and growth stage software companies with the potential to deliver unique value to HubSpot's customer base. In 2018, they do $513 million in revenue, $674 million in revenue the next year. And in 2020, the year they're named number one on Glassdoor's best places to work, they do $883 million in revenue. HubSpot would have 4,000 employees by the end of 2020. In an interview in late 2020, reflecting on the evolution of the CRM, Darmesh shared the importance of creating a platform. Here's a quote from Darmesh. In terms of CRM as an industry, I think what's happening is that you, if you look at first-generation CRM, Cybo, and those folks that kind of laid the early groundwork, and we have Salesforce for kind of what we think of as generation two, the one thing we've learned, though, is that in the early formation CRMs, one of the questions I've asked myself is why are there not more CRM software companies? Like there should be literally hundreds, right? There's hundreds of marketing software companies and arguably CRM is much more important. What's happened now is that in order to really effectively compete in the CRM industry, you can't just be that database. You have to be a platform. The thing that's become clear now is when most people think out of a platform, it's like, oh, other people are building on top of it. You have APIs and you can kind of extend it. That's all very, very true. But the other part of it is to what degree is the company itself leveraging the platform in terms of are the various kind of software services being used cohesively across the whole thing? The next year would mark another milestone in Darmesh's life and include one of their most significant acquisitions. Billionaire Hustle. In 2021, HubSpot passes a billion dollars in revenue for the first time, finishing the year with $1.3 billion in revenue. In February, Axios breaks the news that HubSpot is acquiring the hustle for a reported $27 million. The entrepreneur and business-focused newsletter started by Sam Parr has a million and a half subscribers and also includes a well-known podcast, My First Million, and a premium subscription, Trends. HubSpot's VP of Marketing, Kieran Flanagan, gives us take as to why they did it. By acquiring the hustle, we'll be able to better meet the needs of these scaling companies by delivering educational, business, and tech trend content in their preferred formats. Sam and his team have a proven ability to create content that entrepreneurs, startups, and scaling companies are deeply passionate about. And I'm excited to bring them on board to take that work to the next level. HubSpot hadn't historically done many acquisitions. In an interview Darmesh did with Sam and Sean for My First Million, he mentioned the acquisition as being one of the better things HubSpot has done as far as strategy. He'd go on to say that more SaaS companies will own their distribution, not relying as heavily on buying or renting audiences. In September 2021, after their stock surges, Darmesh becomes a billionaire, owning a 3.4% stake in HubSpot at the time. Combined with other assets, Forbes estimates Darmesh has a net worth of $1.1 billion at this time, an amazing accomplishment for anyone, let alone someone who grew up in a small town in India, and Darmesh's plans with all that money to give away 90% of it. 
The joke with his wife is that he wants to own the world while she wants to save it. He's the capitalist. She's the one running her foundation. Darmesh talked in an interview about how the first half of life is spent converting time to money, while the back half of life, you're trying to buy back time. He explained how once he was making $10, $20, $50 per hour, and he was an engineer and could fill his hours with work. In his early 20s, he got a bump to $125 an hour in the 1990s in Birmingham, Alabama. He made the decision that if there's anything that could be done spending less than $125 an hour, he'd delegate that. And now, had he worked 30 years for 60 hours a week, his average hourly rate would be $10,000 an hour, though it's backloaded. That's effectively his hourly rate. So he wouldn't spend his time on anything that isn't worth at least that. His takeaway message. The short message is, most people don't value their time enough and don't think about it objectively enough. And it, like anything else, is a resource and is finite. But put a number on it. Then ask yourself, what are the things I'm doing with my time that are not worth that? Darmesh today. Darmesh is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, yet still has an insecurity due to his very modest upbringing that he's playing catch-up. He talked about Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates programming at a young age and going to the best schools and asked himself if he even has a fighting chance given that he started later. I found this interesting. He still has that chip on his shoulder. And he hasn't stopped building things either. During the peak Wordle craze, he launched a competitor, Wordplay. Wanting to walk his son, who was learning the programming language Python at the time, through the process of launching a product, Darmesh built Wordplay with Python as well. He showed his son the product, what he was going to tweet to launch it, and what went into the whole process. Wordplay ended up taking off, getting 9 million players to use it. At HubSpot today, Darmesh is focused on Three primary things. One is platform. Two is brand, or the story of HubSpot. And three is boldness, which is the longest running, and it's about how he pushes the organization to take more calculated risks, something he thinks all companies need to do. He mentioned how he always only has three things to work on, hammering home the importance of focus. And over the course of his career, that focus has certainly paid off. In 2022, HubSpot's revenue continued to climb, doing $1.7 billion. Not bad for a company many thought was a terrible idea and would never scale. Darmesh the investor. You can't tell the story of Darmesh without mentioning his investments. In an interview in 2021, he shared a little bit about his unique investing experience. I've made 95 angel investments throughout my career. For a vast majority of them, I've never met the founders. I never lead the deals. Historically, I don't do follow-ons because that requires tracking. That's been my MO. Even though I don't meet the founders, I still like to believe that I invest in people. My set of inputs are different. I can tell you in 150-word emails whether someone is a jerk or not. I would take my angel portfolio and put it up against any early-stage investor on the planet. Coinbase was a big hit. I was the first money in Okta, Dropbox, and Stack Overflow. They've already returned 30 times my original investment. And a bit more on his approach to investing. Most of the deal flow comes from my immediate network. A lot of times, I invest in the same founder across multiple companies. In my experience so far, second companies end up being much better than the first one. I had this strong belief in cryptocurrency back when it wasn't as cool. I felt like this thing needed to exist. I have a mini framework for assessing ideas. The number one thing is potential. 
If all stars align, how big could this be? Number two is the probability of that outcome. The mistake people make is looking at the probability of success and saying, I only have a 1% success rate. I better not do it. The right way to approach it is the statistical way, which is the expected value. Don't look at the probability of success. Multiply that by the outcome if the thing is successful. The third is passion or proximity. Am I excited about this or is it close to something that I care about? Those are the three factors that I look for. He got started in angel investing while at MIT when he had promised his wife he wouldn't start another company. His thought? I'll invest in startups so I can still be involved. He also wrote an insightful article with his lessons from angel investing, which is linked at justforgrind.com, which I've read a few times and is worth checking out. Darmesh's wisdom on what's needed for successful co-founder relationships. I think the number one thing is mutual respect and admiration. Number two thing, maybe even the number one thing, is you have to actually enjoy spending time with that person. As simple as that sounds, if that's not the case, if you're just doing it for the money, you're doing it for the success, and you just don't like being around that other individual, the startup is not going to work. More startups fail from co-founder conflict probably than any other reason. On strengths over weaknesses, I don't want to spend 10, 20, 30 years of my life getting passively good at something. I'm a big believer of taking your strengths, whatever they are, and put all your energy into amplifying your strengths and getting really good at things and don't worry about your weaknesses all that much. I don't want to worry about my weaknesses managing people. On copywriting, copywriting overall is one of the most underrated skills in entrepreneurship generally. People do not realize the amount of leverage you get by just spending 10, 20, 50 hours, and you can learn a lot of what you need by reading the top three books on it and practicing the craft. On moving from SMB to enterprise, as you move up, every single metric you track will improve. Everything. Not like, oh, this got better and this. Just about everything you track will look better. Retention is better. Better average revenue per user. All those things will look better. The one thing over the long term that almost is never better is the competitive dynamic because everyone got pulled up. So now you're sitting here in the enterprise thing and you're duking it out with every other company that over the course of the last N years also has been pulled up. And now it's like, oh, I'm now up against the incumbent that's really better at this than I am. It's like, okay, what is it you have that's so special that's going to allow you to scale up an enterprise? On the challenges of freemium and a brilliant solution. One of the big challenges with freemium is you have to decide what that small piece is. There are issues around do people devalue the big thing because some portion of it's available for free or do you get bucketed into something else? What we did is to say, instead of giving a part of the solution away, why don't we create a tool that services the problem that they have? That increases the likelihood that they'll buy the full solution. It has worked brilliantly for us. Finally, on why HubSpot succeeded. When people look at HubSpot, it's this success story. I'd remind viewers and entrepreneurs out there that HubSpot didn't start with a particularly brilliant idea. Most of our success is attributed to two things. One is a maniacal focus on the customer problem. Everyone would ask us, it's great that you started with small businesses. What is your plan to build enterprise? We resisted that. We focused on our customers. 
the second thing is just raw execution. We were fortunate to bring great people onto the team. The culture of the company was strong. Most entrepreneurs don't spend enough time thinking about the culture they want to create. I understand the hesitation. Some may say, we have products to build. Culture is something bigger companies worry about. That's Dharmesh Shaw, co-founder of HubSpot. Thanks for listening.